We've been in a series, and our series is called Eyewitness, and it's basically walking with John through the Gospel of John, looking at seven different signs of, that Jesus had performed that basically showed the world who he is. So I have a question to start out this morning is this, is, uh, have you ever been in a situation, have you ever seen a situation where religious rules, religious laws, or religious commandments get in the way of or are given priority over compassion. Maybe, maybe you've been a victim of this. Maybe it's something that, that where uh, something happened and, and there's this group of, of sacred men that are in, in sacred spaces using a, a sacred text and they interpret that text and put it together with their traditions, and they use it in such a way that they withhold compassion, or worse, they mistreat a person. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? Have you ever been guilty of this? Because I have. As a young, college-educated Pharisee, I was more focused on what the text said than I forgot what the text was for. I focused so much on what the text said that I lost sight of the fact of and why it was written, and who was behind writing it. I got focused on the speck in someone else's eye. Or I got focused on, on the speck in a group of people's eyes, and I failed to see the whole log truck coming out of my own. And I realized that the reason that Jesus, that Jesus had trouble with those kinds of people is because those kinds of people weren't like him. They weren't Jesus, they weren't Jesus' favorite kind of people. And I realized I had to learn quickly, I had to learn quickly that I was not one of Jesus' favorite kind of people. Have you been there? Are you there? I had to learn lessons the hard way. I had to understand and, and walk through some difficult situations where I was less than godly. I had to walk through situations where I was more concerned about being right than being loving. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in week three. We're journeying with John through uh, the, the gospel of John. We're journeying through his journey with Jesus. And John and the disciples, John and the disciples did not follow Jesus because of faith. John would caution us, in fact, against following Jesus because of faith. They followed because of what they had seen. 
and what they had heard. Because of what they had seen and what they had heard, it changed them. And from what John had seen and what John had heard, he recognized, he came to the conclusion that Jesus was Messiah. So John encouraged his readers. He encouraged them not to just take it because of faith, but because of what was seen and what was heard. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. In other words, he said, listen, what I need you to understand about what I'm writing here is that no one told us this. We did not read about it. This is not secondhand information. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our own eyes. We, that we is first century followers, first century people, the ones that looked at, they looked at the risen Jesus, they saw the risen Jesus. They came to the conclusion, this is not a ghost, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, that Jesus was and is a real person who really came back from the dead. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We discovered, we discovered, John says, that that he is like true life, whole life, full life personified. Jesus is the greatest reality of life. And we have seen it, he says, and we testify to it. We have seen and we have heard. John, John at this point had outlived all of his friends, all of the ones that had witnessed these things with him. And as he goes about being in in the midst of the life that God had him live, he had people that wanted to hear the story. And they most likely encouraged him to write this thing down, to write this down so that others could know. We experience it as what we call the gospel of John. But see, John wasn't content just to tell us what had happened. He had an agenda. And John's agenda is spelled out very plainly for us. He says, the reason that I'm taking my time to write these things down is not just so that you will know. Not just so that you'll know that Jesus came and did some amazing things. Not that you'll just know that Jesus performed these signs and wonders, but that you will do something with it. You will do something with what has happened. He says in John, as he closes out the the letter that he wrote, John chapter 20, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In, In fact, Jesus did so many things which are not written in this book. But these things, the ones that I've shared with you, John says, are written for a purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, by believing you may have life. You may have life in His name. So John organized this account. He organized it around these seven signs. And these signs, they convinced John. They convinced the ones that they were journeying through life with. And John, he hoped that these signs would convince 
his readers as well. So today, we're going to be looking at a healing, a healing on the Sabbath. And last week, we looked at the, the healing of a nobleman's son. And the, what was unique about this healing is that Jesus was, was able to heal him without even seeing him, without even being present with him. So Jesus, after he was in Cana for a while, he heads back down south to Jerusalem. So we pick it up in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, starting verse 1. After this, after, after these things happened, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went south to go up, right, because Jerusalem was up on a hill. Jesus left Galilee, and he made his trek south, and he ended up in the city of Jerusalem. And we really don't even know what feast or festival this was. But Jesus is there nonetheless. And now there is in Jerusalem... By the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And what's important to note here is that John, he says, he's not saying there was, but he's saying there is. There is a a pool there next to the sheep gate, under the colonnades. John had seen this with his own eyes, and excavations confirmed the existence He describes this in detail because he had been there. In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. He describes a group of people who are desperate. They're desperate to to have a life that they can engage in. They're desperate because they desperately want healing. They want something different. And you say, well, why didn't they just go see a doctor? Because doctors in ancient times, they didn't know much. They didn't know much at all. In fact, in Rome, there there was a law that if you were a doctor, you couldn't examine a dead body. So they investigated before. Sick people, they didn't have very many options. They didn't have very very many options. Only the rich people could have doctors. And like I said, doctors didn't know a whole lot. I mean, you think about all of the different remedies that used to happen along the lines of antiquity. I mean, you're, you're pulling out ideas like leeches and, you know, other gross things like bloodletting and, and all of that, right? So what did most people do? Most people depended on the temples. They depended on the temples and their superstition. The temples, because maybe, maybe in in the Roman world, maybe one of the gods would accidentally heal me, accidentally do something to help me. Because in that day and age, the, the understanding of the gods was that the people, the people existed to serve the gods. The gods did nothing for them. Or maybe at the temple, maybe a, a priest would have mercy on them. They would, they would look upon them with compassion and, and say a prayer to, to God to help bring their healing. So maybe the temples were the way they would go, but superstition. And this is actually what this story hinges on, is superstition. There was a legend that said, and if you're looking in your scripture, if you look in the ESV, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And you're like, hey, where's verse 4? 
And this is what is explained in verse 4. There was a legend, a legend that said that, that when the water stirred, when these, the waters in this pool were stirred every once in a while, it was because an angel had dipped its toe in. And the first one into the water wins. The first one in the water gets healed. So that superstition was strong. And for some of these people, it was their only hope. So Jesus comes into this area. And as you can imagine, this area was something that other people would most likely avoid. Because it's, it's just filled with people who are laying on their mats who can't move. Filled with the, blame, the blind, the lame, the, the ones who are otherwise unable to move and get there on their own. And, and it most likely smelled. It smelled most likely horrible. Because people were there laying in the sun all day long. And if they had, by chance, a loved one, if by chance they had a loved one that might bring them home at lunch or bring them home at night, likely people just stayed out there. And they needed the intercession of someone else to go to and fro. And likely there would be someone who would make the rounds, an official of sorts, to kind of clear out the dead occasionally. Can you imagine that picture? Continues. One man, one man who had been there, he had been an invalid for 38 years. Some of you are like, I know a guy that's been there. When Jesus saw this man lying there, when Jesus saw this man lying there, he already knew that he had been there a long time. And Jesus then decides that this is a proper opportunity for him to give a sign. But before he does that, he asks this man a pretty strange question. And when you read the question... I want you to take it in and understand that this is actually a very powerful question. In fact, it may be why some of you are here today. Jesus leans in and maybe he whispers into this man's ear. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you want to get well? And this helps us to understand that not everybody does. Not everybody wants to get well because the work of getting well is sometimes much more difficult than being sick. Sometimes we get things when we are sick that we don't get when we are well. Sometimes we're just not willing to pay that price. So it's easier. It's easier for us to just continue to be consumed by that habit. It's easier for us to continue to give in to something that is slowly deteriorating our bodies. It's so, so much easier just to, to continue on pursuing a bad relationship after bad relationship. Because to change, to change means I have to admit something about me. I'd have to admit that maybe there's some work to do in me. 
So I'll keep the habit. I'll keep the bad relationship. I'll stay the same. Because that's much easier than getting better. So this is a powerful question from Jesus. He says, do you want, do you want to be healed? And so the man, the man answered him. He said, sir, I have no one. I have absolutely no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am finally making my way inch by inch closer and closer, another one gets down and steps in before me. Imagine for a moment, here's the idea behind this pool, was that in this pool it was fed by a natural spring that had its source from underneath. And every now and then, a bubble or, or something would come up and it would stir the water. And as legends do, and as, as hope kind of comes out, and, and we're, we're willing to have hope in all kinds of things, right? Knock on wood, right? We're, we're, we're wanting to say, well, I picked up this, and that's my, my lucky that. And, and, you know, and we have all of these superstitions that we kind of mix in and make it about God. But instead, what's happening is in this moment, the water stirs, and then there is chaos, the bubbles come, and then desperation is seen in action. As people who have been laying down, who were just waiting, some who couldn't even see but heard that the water had stirred, and they all make a mad rush to finally get in the water. But desperation leans into disappointment as they find that they are disappointed once again because nothing had changed for them. So many, so many people who had no other means to get the help that they desperately want, that they desperately need. And Jesus said to him, get up. Now, in some translations, there's an exclamation point right there. This word in the Greek is agero. It means to wake up. It means to rise up. It means to come to life. And what Jesus is saying, I want you to come to life, to stop shrinking back and embrace this life. I need you to get up. This is, not, this is what kind of separates this. What happens next separates this from just being an act of kindness by Jesus and makes it a sign. Jesus says, get up and take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. You know what happened in the moment that Jesus said, pick up your mat, roll it up, put it over your shoulder, get up, and walk. In that moment, Jesus kicked a hornet's nest on purpose because, the Scripture says, now that day, it was the Sabbath. Mm. The collective, oh no, right? Because on the Sabbath, not, not just the Sabbath, but the Sabbath, because it was in Jerusalem at the temple, right? 
And so here we are. We have the Sabbath going on. We have this man that picks up, rolls up his mat, puts it on his shoulder, and starts walking away. The Pharisees likely walked around just kind of checking on people, making sure, making sure, making sure that nobody was up to anything that was going to break the laws of the Sabbath. And here it comes. There's this man. What's he doing? He's carrying something. He has his mat, and he's walking. He's walking towards, not away from, he's walking toward the temple, which means that he thinks that in this moment, what he's doing is okay enough for him to actually enter into the temple. And he's going to the temple to give thanks to God. And think about this. He may have not been able to do so since he was a little boy. For 38 years, he'd been unable to enter into the temple because of his disability. For 38 years, now he can finally return. And we don't know for sure, but it would be a natural thing for him to want to get up and go. And the Jewish leaders, they see this, and they see him carrying his mat, and they just had to step in. (laughs) Who does he think he is? Because there are rules here. There are rules here, people. There are rules, and you're not following them. So the Jews, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, they said, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful. For you to take up your bed. But see, the law didn't say that. Their tradition did. Their tradition forbade the carrying of the mat. This tradition was called, is called the tradition of the elders or the oral Torah. And in this, what they decided to do as as the Sinai covenant came down and and Moses was telling them all these things that God said, here's how you can live a holy life and understand that I am the Lord your God and there's nothing else before me, how you can live a life that brings honor and glory to me. They decided, hey, why don't we do a little bit of extra work here because I know Bob down the street, right? And he's going to mess this thing up. So let's make some extra rules. Let's kind of put a fence around the law. And so the oral Torah, in the oral Torah, there were 39 categories of things. Not 39 things, but 39 categories of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. So if they opened up or went through their mental catalog of all the things that you can't do on the Sabbath, one of them was you cannot carry something from one place to another because that, had, that violates their application of the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The point of that commandment was to, to give you a break from labor, to give you a respite from your work, not to take a break from love. To take a break from your op- occupation, but not take a break from compassion. So, this is what happens, though. 
This is what happens when defending a theological system, when defending an ideology. This is what happens when we, when we begin defending an agenda, any type of agenda, a political agenda, a party agenda, whatever it is. We take our loyalty and we defend it and we take precedence. Our defense of our whatever we're defending takes precedence over people, over the things we claim to serve. So when what's best for people is no longer important to you, it puts you at odds with God. And the reason that I say this is because John, when he told us the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3, it was a few verses back, he tells us, he tells us that God, that God loved people. God loved people so much regardless of where they came from. He loved people regardless of how old they are, of their generation. He loved people so much that he sent his son. So the Pharisees, they say, it's the Sabbath. And I don't know who you think you are, but it is not lawful for you to do the things you're doing. So you need to, like, drop right here. I mean, because you can't do anything. But the man answered them. He said, the man, the man who healed me, that man, that very person is the one that said to me, roll up your mat, take up your bed, and walk. And so I opted to obey the one who healed me rather than obey you because you have ignored me for 38 years. You have shunned me. You have marginalized me. You have insisted that I was getting what I deserved. You have implied that my mother was so, so sinful that I was living out her sin. You've implied so many things about me and you don't even know me. And this man, this man gave me what I don't deserve. And so they asked him, they asked him, then who, who is this lawbreaker? Who is this man that would defy the rules and the regulations of this grand place? Who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is this man that defiles, makes dirty the Sabbath? Now, the man who had been healed, he actually didn't know who it was. Because for him, it didn't matter. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Can you imagine in the midst of the chaos as the, the water stir that there's people just piling in for everywhere and Jesus is able to just withdraw from the crowd and, and leave the place. And afterwards, Jesus, guess where Jesus found him? He found him in the temple. He ignored the rules and the regulations of those that said you can't come in. And Jesus said to him, 
I see that you're well. And the guy, surprised because he probably heard that, the voice, and it was probably Jesus coming up behind him and saying, listen, I see that you're well. And he recognizes the voice, and it's the voice of the one that said, get up. And he, he smiles, and he turns around and says, it's you. It's you. It was Jesus. And knowing Jesus, knowing that this man had been accused of sinning, of carrying his mat, Jesus smiles, probably ribs him a little bit and says, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Hey, buddy, better stop carrying that mat around, you sinner, or something worse will happen. The religious... The religious, they might get you, they might punish you, they might take you and do some things with you. So what happens? What happens when you recognize, when you recognize who Jesus is? What happens as you begin to lose your fear of religious people? When you follow Jesus... Religion will lose its grip on you. So, this man with his bed slung over his shoulder, he works his way over to the Jewish leaders. I think, with a little hint of sarcasm and a kind of you-don't-own-me kind of way, he walks over to the Jewish leaders And he tells them it is Jesus who had made him well. The man went away, the scripture says, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this, this reason, this event is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he does not honor the Sabbath. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus, he answered them and he said, He said, sorry, what you say? He said, my father is working until now. My father is working until now, and I am working. He says, God doesn't take a day off. Remember, the Sabbath was made for you, and you weren't made for the Sabbath. God doesn't take a day off. God violates the Sabbath by your definition. So Jesus says, I too, I will too, like father, like son. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And yes, he was. So Jesus responded. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, The son does likewise. 
So Jesus told them essentially, do you want to know what God is really like? Do you, do you want to know the things that God would be doing if he was right here in front of you? Are you confused about who God is? Are you confused about how God interacts? Do you want to get it all figured out? If you do, how will you really know what God is like? Jesus says, watch me. Do you want to know what God would actually say? Do you want to know what God has to say with circumstances like this one? Do you want to know what God would have to say about the way that you just behaved? Do you want the input of your heavenly father? Do you want input that he has in those gray areas that you, the religious, have colored in black and white? Jesus says, listen to me. Do you want to know what God would actually do? Do you want to know what God would do? God would intervene. Do you know what God would do? God would step into the current status of this world and make some changes. If you want to know how the holy would interact with the sinless masses, the sin-filled masses, You want to know what God would do? Jesus said, follow me. And in following Jesus, you'll find what John had been pointing out, what he had been urging us toward from the beginning of his letter. So Jesus, in response to these Pharisees, I mean, how many of you Still, I mean, how many of you, first of all, have, it's been a long time since you've been 20? Okay, good. I'm raising my hand. How many of you still think the same way that you did when you were 20? (laughs) Well, why not? How many of you are a little bit past 40? Okay, a whole lot past 40. How many of you still think the same way that you did when you were 30? There is something about following Jesus. There's something about being in tune with our Heavenly Father and His interaction in this world. He says this to the Pharisees. He says, listen, you guys, you search the Scriptures, and you build yourself up in the Scriptures because you think in building yourself up in the Scriptures, you will actually find eternal life. But what you've missed is that those very scriptures have laid witness, bear witness about me. (laughs) Yet you refuse. You're so prideful. You refuse. You're so arrogant. You refuse to come to me so that you can shake off the chains that you've been trying to bear your entire life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You have opted. You have opted for the written over the living. You have chosen. You have chosen your interpretation over a living demonstration. Once upon a time, 
Once upon a time, you had an excuse. Once upon a time, you had one. But now you don't because the Word became flesh. And it's standing right in front of you. Jesus says the guessing is over. The guessing is over. Watch me. The guessing is over. Listen to me. You want life? Follow me. I am a living representation and demonstration of everything that was written before. Jesus tells them that everything pointed to him. And this, this is your sign. This is what you've been waiting for. This is why, as we read the Gospels, this is why the Gospels are so important. Because they show us what does it look like when the Word is made flesh and dwells among us. In a world that is filled with competing political and moral and religious ideas, God made it absolutely simple. He showed up, he spoke up, and he was clear. He said, the you beside you is more, should take more priority than the potential flawed view that you carry around inside you. The person beside you should be more important than the view that you carry along inside you because it could be, it could be, That in holding so tightly to that, you may find yourself at odds with your Heavenly Father. We don't always know what to believe. We don't always know who to believe. But thanks to Jesus, thanks to Jesus, we almost always know what what love requires of us. Love requires that we honor the you beside you. Love requires that we share in grace and forgiveness. If we can just do what love requires of us, that will be enough. Does your version of religion or your version of politics get in the way of you loving people? Does it get in the way of you loving people that God loves? If so... You're at odds with God. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people God loves? If so, you've got the wrong version. John, who knew Jesus, he said, God is love. It's why he showed up. It's why God sent his son. It's why Jesus became the word, became flesh. It's to show us how it is done. Then you know what he did? He died. He died for the times that we don't do it right. So when you're on the wrong side of love, when you're on the wrong side of love, you are on the wrong side of God. Jesus said, I've come. I've come to show you the way. I've come to show you how to get it right. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have to admit that there are so many things that go on inside of us as we, as we lean in against such strongly held beliefs and practices, traditions, politics, morality, and all of those things. And God, we've got to admit that we struggle at times in knowing how to show your love to a world that is lost and dying without you. So Heavenly Father, help us to be people that, that rise up and repent people that, that look at the world and say, yes, it may be going poorly, but I have an opportunity to show honor to those who are around me, to point them to the love that can only come through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to shake off those things that bind and instead learn what does it look like to follow Jesus because Jesus himself said that others will know that we belong to him by the love that we have. God, we thank you for that truth. It's in Jesus' name.